Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, August 10th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. The United States still in a losing battle with the coronavirus pandemic as the nation registers more than 5 million infections. After stimulus talks break down on Capitol Hill, President Trump announcing a series of executive orders, some possibly unconstitutional, including one that would jeopardize Medicare and Social Security. And as a debate over school reopening for in-person classes continues, many parents are hiring at-home tutors to help with virtual lessons. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with a major gas explosion in a residential area in Baltimore where several people, including children, are trapped inside their homes. According to authorities, at least one person is now dead. Several people are trapped and at least two people are reported to be critically injured after the explosion this morning in the northwestern part of the city. City officials say the Baltimore Special Rescue Operations Team has begun search and rescue operations there. There are now more than 5 million cases of coronavirus in the U.S., the death toll approaching 163,000. Some hotspots are starting to see a decline in cases, but numbers still too high. All this as experts issue new warnings about COVID-19 and kids and the battle to open schools for in-person classes rages on. Lorraine Gassides has the latest. The U.S. reaching a new record Sunday, surpassing 5 million cases of coronavirus. It is one of the worst public health tragedies in the history of the United States, certainly in the last 100 years. The country accounting for about a quarter of all cases globally and topping the list with the most deaths in the world. But still, gatherings like this one in Sturgis, South Dakota, continue to happen. Tens of thousands crowding an annual motorcycle rally over the weekend. There should be a federal mask mandate. We know from uh, studies across the country that when there is a mask mandate in place, the number of infections drops dramatically. There have been studies suggesting that mask mandates are actually more effective than lockdowns. In some of the hardest hit states, cases dropping, but the daily numbers are still very high. On Saturday, the California Department of Health reported 7,371 new cases, and the Florida Department of Health reported more than 8,500 cases. Meanwhile, a new report from the American Academy of Pediatrics says nearly 339,000 of reported cases are in children, nearly 100,000 of those reported in just the last two weeks of July. After starting in-person classes, Georgia's North Paulding High School implementing virtual teaching today and tomorrow for cleaning after more than a dozen students tested positive for COVID-19. That's the school where a sophomore took this photo of a crowded hallway, students not wearing masks. I've gotten threats and things like that, but I know that I'm doing the right thing and I and it's not going to stop me from continuing doing it. In New York, where officials announced the school year will begin with in-person classes due to the low positivity rate, safety measures and cleaning will be strictly enforced to prevent an outbreak. We're going to have temperature checks. We're going to have randomized temperature checks. Everyone will be wearing personal protection equipment. Face masks will be required. We're going to have 24-7 uh, people walking around disinfecting doorknobs and handrails. 
Meanwhile, in Florida, there's a battle brewing in the reopening of schools. The largest school uh, teachers union in that state suing the state. 12 counties are ready to start in-person classes this week, but in nine of those districts, the positivity rate among students and, and in the community is above 5%, which the White House task force says has to be below 5% to have students come back to class. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. A lot of controversy there. And let's go to Dr. Annalie Baker, an emergency room physician in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Baker. Welcome. So for the last week, we've seen a drop in cases. Let's go ahead and take a look at this information we have on our screen. We can see a dip on August 2nd and also August 3rd when state testing sites were closed because of tropical storm Isaias. So how reliable is testing data when it comes to determining whether health officials are gaining the upper hand in the state of Florida? Thank you for having me. You certainly make an excellent point. We saw that dip, which we sort of anticipated after the hurricane, um, and other things affect the test numbers as well. You know, even week by week on Sundays, for example, we always see a bit of a dip just because most of the labs are not processing samples over the weekend, for example. Uh, and we have similar things like that, that that are external factors that we can't really control at a hospital level. So it can be difficult to interpret case numbers. Um, one thing that I look to when I'm not quite sure about the trends in the case numbers is something like hospital admission rates, ICU capacity rates. Those are things that are less influenced by the testing debacle, if you will, because decisions to admit a patient to the hospital are generally made based on clinical parameters, not based on a positive test. And so for that reason, I think we can at least find some reassurance in that we do have dropping admission rates and we have fewer hospitals who are struggling with capacity at this time. Some good news there. So has testing capacity improved since the beginning of the outbreak and are hospitals that you were discussing forced to prioritize who to test? Well, testing capacity has certainly improved. Um, pretty much everything has improved since the very beginning of the pandemic. So, uh, but, but you're right, now that our community transmission is this high, we have overwhelmed our testing infrastructure. So I can't say that we've seen any major changes in that in the last few weeks. Um, and, you know, while we are hopeful about some of these point of care tests, some of these more rapid assays, I haven't seen it yet in the hospital at this point. We are pretty much only able to test patients who are either very, very sick, you know, sick enough to be admitted to the hospital or patients who are going for an emergent procedure. So as you can imagine, that leaves hundreds of probable cases of COVID-19 who are not quite sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, who are at this point being sent home to manage their symptoms at home with some guidance, but are not being counted in those national tallies and pardon me, and those state-based tallies. So those numbers are a little bit off, I would say. However, I do agree that we're seeing a downward trend and that it's definitely positive. We appreciate all the hard work that's going being done by Floridians, by individual citizens across our state. It is really showing a difference in the hospital. Another hot topic at the moment, and nearly 100,000 children tested positive for coronavirus in the last two weeks in July, and that's according to a new report by the American Academy of Pediatrics. What concerns does that raise now that some schools are reopening for in-person classes? That is absolutely concerning to us. You know, this is one of those things that has changed months 
by month throughout the pandemic in terms of the data we have about children. Initially, we thought that children were almost irrelevant to this pandemic. They didn't seem to get very ill and they didn't seem to be major drivers of transmission. We still agree that it is very, very rare for a children to get sick. It's not impossible. There are children who have become very ill and even children who have died, but it's very, very rare. What is not so rare and what we're seeing in that new report is that these children are indeed passing the virus to their parents, to older teachers, to people that they come into contact with who may be at higher risk than the children themselves. And that is concerning. So we definitely want our schools reopened. I mean, everybody wants the kids back in school. I have three children myself. I am fully aware of how hard it is right now. But but yeah, unfortunately, I just don't know that we're in a position right now to bring everybody back safely. And one of the biggest problems is coming back full circle to testing. Because once we have our kids back in school, even with all the proper safety procedures in place and distancing and masks, there's inevitably going to be cases, there's going to be false alarms. You know, we have flu season coming up, so we're going to see kids coming in with random sort of overlapping symptoms, whether it's fever or body aches, maybe it's from the flu, maybe not. And the issue is that schools need to be able to mobilize rapidly test, isolate, and trace appropriately. And as of now, we're just not in that position. You know, a really high percentage of schools across our state don't even have a school nurse, a dedicated school nurse. So I'm trying to imagine, you know, this monumental task and not only that, but who is going to be handling it? Who is going to be running the show at each school? I know so many questions. I can totally relate to you. I have a daughter, two small kids. One of them goes to school. I just want her to start, but I'm also concerned about everything that's going on. So it'll be another interesting school year. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Annalie Baker, emergency room physician in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Take care of yourself and your family. Thanks again. And President Trump is sparking new confusion over additional unemployment benefits. He now says some states may not be required to pay part of the benefits if governors request federal help. This comes after the president signed four executive orders, which Democrats call an unconstitutional end run around Congress. There's confusion and controversy about President Trump's new executive actions on coronavirus relief. And it was time to act. And actually, we've been largely praised. We have to get money out to the people. On Saturday, Trump signed four executive actions that would extend unemployment benefits but reduce the amount from $600 to $400 per week, curb evictions, provide relief to student borrowers, and suspend collection of payroll taxes. However, the president's move does not provide a clear path to help millions of Americans out of work. My constitutional advisors tell me they're absurdly unconstitutional. Under the president's plan, the $400 a week requires a state to commit to providing $100 for unemployment. But many states are already facing budget crunches caused by the pandemic. Look, that would cost us about $500 million between now and uh, the end of the year. I could take that money from testing. I don't think that's a great idea. On Sunday, though, the president said it's possible the federal government could pick up the whole tab if governors request it. It'll depend on the state and they'll make an application. We'll look at it and we'll make a decision. So it may be they'll pay nothing in some instances. 
Democrats also say that his orders actually accomplish far less than meets the eye. The president's executive orders described in one word could be paltry. Overnight, Trump dismissed the Democratic criticism, suggesting his executive actions might help reignite those failed congressional negotiations, which collapsed with nothing to show after weeks of talks. They're much more inclined to make a deal now than they would have been two days ago. And now in terms of the payroll tax suspension, only Congress has the power to change tax law. Meanwhile, the White House and congressional Democrats indicated Sunday they want to resume negotiations, but no talks are scheduled yet. Edwin Beatty has the latest on next steps on the relief bill. Edwin. Lorraine, even though President Trump signed those executive actions throughout the weekend, at the end of the day, the only way Americans will receive the help they need is going to be through a, through a bill. And that will, have, that will only happen when people from the White House and Democrats in Congress come together to negotiate and come up with a bill. But the tension keep, keep increasing. Even the White House Chief of Staff, uh, Mark Meadows, and the Secretary of the Treasury Department, Stephen Mnuchin, said that now it is the time for Democrats to come to the table with a proposal. Let's listen to what Pelosi and Mnuchin had to say. There's a, a long way for us to come together, but we'll come down a trillion, you go up a trillion, we'll find our common ground so, there. So Let's go to the table. Told the Speaker and Senator Schumer, anytime they have a new proposal, I'm willing to listen. But let me just say you're right. We've said let's pass legislation on the things we agree on and knock these off one at a time. And they've refused to do that until they get their trillion dollars for the states. Pelosi said that she's willing to compromise, but so does the White House. And she said that when it comes to the $600 per week that unemployed Americans have been receiving, that number is not negotiable. President Trump also said over the weekend that he spoke to Democrats yesterday. But today, Democrats are saying that never happened. Let's take a listen to what the president said. The Democrats have called. They'd like to get together. And we say if it's not a waste of time, we'll do it. But if it is a waste of time, it doesn't make sense. Of course, the tensions keep coming. And this morning, President Trump took to his Twitter account the following, and I quote, So now Schumer and Pelosi want to make a deal. Amazing how it all works, isn't it? Where have they been for the last four weeks where they were hardliners and only wanted bailout money for Democrat-run states and cities that are failing badly? They know my phone number. Of course, we're going to keep following up, Lorraine, because tensions will keep arising. And on top of that, to make a deal could take a long time because Senate are no longer in Washington, D.C. So making an agreement and passing the bill could take a couple of weeks. Back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for keeping us informed on all those developments there. And another major story we're tracking today. China's government sanctioned some prominent U.S. politicians for, quote, behaving badly on Hong Kong-related issues. Among those politicians, Republican Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. The move follows U.S. sanctions on Hong Kong's chief executive and 10 other Chinese and Hong Kong officials over crackdowns on political freedom. The U.S. sanctions were issued on Friday. They were the Trump administration's latest measure in response to China's enforcement of a controversial national security law on Hong Kong. The November election is just 84 days away, and we should soon find out who will complete the 2020 Democratic presidential campaign ticket. Presumptive presidential nominee Joe Biden is expected to announce his running mate this week. 
Biden previously said he would choose a woman. Among those rumored to be top contenders include California Congresswoman Karen Bass, former U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice, and Senator Kamala Harris. Biden served eight years as former president, Obama's vice president. As protests continue around the country, a riot was again declared by authorities Sunday night in Portland when protesters marched to a police union building, blocked a road and set fires inside dumpsters. This protest ended almost as soon as it began outside the Portland Police Association building, the same building where protesters were dispersed after a fire was started inside the offices the night before. Since George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, protests have occurred nightly in the city for more than 70 days. In Arizona, police say eight people were arrested after a protest in downtown Phoenix on Sunday night. The event began as a peaceful march until protesters and law enforcement clashed at Phoenix police headquarters. There were no injuries reported. It's a unique approach to schooling during the pandemic. As physical doors to schools around the country remain closed, there's a new education model that is gradually gaining acceptance nationwide. Fabiola Galindo explains. It's a dilemma for working families. What to do if you can't supervise your children's online classes because you have to work? It's not the same to take online classes, but I don't think it's the right time to send kids back to school, says this caregiver. Many school districts will not open public schools this fall. Districts across the country are coming up with independent alternative plans. The shadow schools, where a small group of students of the same age can get tutoring while their parents work and they study online. We do not want parents to be in a position where they have to choose whether they go to work or stay home just to, to support their children and watch their children um, on distance learning. States like California and Oklahoma are allowing institutions to emulate the school dynamic. And now the ball is in a different country. From gyms to churches, they set up the classrooms filled with a pot of students, studying with the supervision of an adult. It's like taking one of our schools and spreading it out over nine different facilities. This mother partially agrees with the idea. Grupo pequeño, sí. I am okay with a small group, less than 10 in a room with an adult, and the mask, of course. But there is still risk for newer infections. My grandkids can bring the virus home too, so I don't think it's the right moment right now. The main goal is to secure a good learning process for students who are falling behind. Here in New York, the state government already agreed that public schools will reopen in September, but parents will have the option of continuing with virtual learning if that's what they prefer. But in the meantime, the debate between avoiding getting sick or getting adequate education lives on. In New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. In California, as parents navigate the toughest back-to-school period in recent memory, resources are coming together to help those families prepare their children for school, whether that involves in-person learning or online classes. Gianni Aponte has the story. Luri Roblero arrived very early in search of school supplies, backpacks and food for families affected by the pandemic and whose children are preparing to start classes. Ludi and her husband have not worked since the beginning of the pandemic. She comes mainly looking for food. The backpacks, maybe for the girls, but the food they have will really help. 
Although many still don't know if the classes will be face-to-face -face or virtual, they came to get the basics for their children. Though some, like Maria Campos, have already decided that they will not send their children to school. I am afraid because I am already an adult. I am older. I can get sick. Maybe they won't, but I will. We have to be united in these moments. It is a very difficult situation that has been in our community here in Los Angeles. Very hard. This event shows the solidarity. Every person here is a volunteer. To try to give them a memory of the old normality. Within this new normality that we are all going to get used to in one way or another and to do it in the best possible way. Under the back-to-school program, 70,000 books on science, literature, Spanish, English, notebooks, food and sports were, were distributed. Among other supplies, Ludi says that for at least the next few days she will have food for her two daughters and for herself. She is seven months pregnant with her third child. I feel happy. Thank you for the help. Reported by Liliana Escalante, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. And elsewhere around the country, North Carolina's strongest earthquake in 94 years rattled the region close to the border with Virginia. The 5.1 earthquake hit Sunday morning about two miles away from the town of Sparta. People in places as far away as South Carolina and Georgia felt the quake. Many homes have structural damage. Some residents have had to leave because it's simply not safe inside their homes. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. For Mexican food lovers, digital and social platforms have become one of the best ways to spread love for that country's diverse cuisine. Malena Marchan tells us about several individuals who are doing just that. Hello, I'm Doña Lupita. Today, I'm going to make a nice salpicón. The smile of the 74-year-old grandmother transmits her passion for cooking. She is a new YouTube star who's adding flavor and joy to Mexican food. I have been working since I was very young, preparing mulling, doing what I want on the streets. Her recipes are already known. Diego, a diner who lets himself be conquered by Mexican gastronomy. Her most popular dishes are chili chili with eggs, beef salpicón, roasted and mashed beans in the metate, accompanied by dao balls and butter. Everything with a lot of spice as it's eaten in her land in the state of Guerrero. In this kitchen in Mexico City, Doña Lucha is a fan of these creations. The tradition of Mexican food is not lost and now all these recipes are reaching the world. Her chiles in Nogada are very well known in the area, and she doesn't rule out that one day she will upload her secret recipe online. Doña Lupita is joined online by another star known as the Queen of Cuisine, Doña Angela, who has more than 3 million subscribers on her YouTube channel, making her one of the 100 most influential women in Mexico, according to Forbes magazine. 
Another prominent YouTuber is 79-year-old Tito Charlie, who after losing his job as a small packer, found a place to survive. The truth is I'm amazed with this boom. I never imagined such success. It's all this passion for food that led UNESCO in 2010 to declare Mexican gastronomy a cultural heritage of humanity. Reported by Alejandro Madrigal in Mexico City, Malena Marchan, U News. And finally, tonight, get ready for an all-natural light show in the skies above the U.S., the Perseid Meteor Shower. It's considered the Northern Hemisphere's most popular meteor shower of the year. If you can't get out to have a look, then you may still be able to catch a glimpse of the meteors the following two nights. Perseid meteors are caused by dust and debris left behind from the tail of the comet Swift-Tuttle. So enjoy if you have that opportunity. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.